Well, welcome to a wild bottom line show. We haven't even started yet. I'm Roger Barsh. It's so glad to have you here. At, we're going to start with a God and Country segment of the program. Of course, there's a new survey out that talks about religious liberty that we'll get to later in the month because there's a lot of religious liberty stories to get to. Basically, it takes a look at how Americans view religious liberty. And a new poll from the Freedom Foundation uh, gives an indication as to where we are. Uh, basically, 36% of Americans think that free speech is worth defending, but 37% of Americans believe that it's more important to shut somebody down than to force somebody to hear something they don't want to hear. That's just the, that skimming off the top. You, you begin to realize, wait, so basically what you're saying is, I support the First Amendment until I don't when it comes to freedom of speech. The, the idea with freedom of speech is so basic for us in this country. As part of that First Amendment where we have the right to assemble, we have the right to wor worship the religion that we choose, be that religion, and we have the right to, uh, to, to speak freely, free press, the whole shot. And it's amazing how many people grew up in this kind of millennial mindset. And again, I say this as a Gen X slash baby boomer dad who raised, let's see, two millennials and one who's a Gen Z, even though I think he still kind of falls in the millennial category, Jake's right on the border. And then Lisa's got a millennial and two Gen Zs. So between the, uh, the, the two of us, we've got six that fall into either of those categories. But I can assure you that neither their mother nor their father raised them to be the, the way the traditional millennial is. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have millennial tendencies. But one of the tendencies of the millennial generation that has just been so frustrating for people is this idea that nobody gets hurt. That there are, we don't have laws anymore. We don't have rules anymore. We have protections for people. And it's really, first word that came to mind, it's really disgusting that we become a nation that's like that. The laws that we have are designed to protect society on the whole from malicious behavior, wrongdoing, maltreatment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When there is a misappropriation of justice, we then have a benchmark to look back in. Take, for example, slavery, uh, for example. Now, slavery was legal in many cultures all throughout the history of time. You look at uh, biblical times, and we get it. Slavery en masse still continues even today. But when you look at how the United States was formed as a nation of free people, where 20% of the population weren't free, it is one part of American history that does leave a lousy stink in your mouth or a bad or a stink in your nose or a bad taste in your mouth. So we have to look at the temporal and the spiritual together, I think, as Christians, and understand that we live in a world where people who look at the temporal and the Christian together don't often like the Christian because they just don't get it. That currency doesn't spend for them. It doesn't mean that they can't, and it doesn't mean that they don't benefit from the goodness of God. It just means they don't see it that way. They see a world that is designed like, you know, if they were a bunch of toddlers, um, you know, I, I want what I want when I want it. The granddaughter was with us over the weekend, and, it, and it's interesting to watch her kind of toddle around. And, and it's amazing how many people are so unbalanced these days. No wonder they can't walk. They can't move anywhere. They're kind of stuck where they are. And so what the culture says, if you allow the analogy, is instead of using the God-given mobility that involves analysis, balance, clarity, discernment, balance in terms of uh, you know where, where you are physically, 
and then being able, if you are not in balance, trust me, I mean, I know this from experience with my medications, with my heart condition, things like that. When you're out of balance, you can't stand up straight. You can't look straight. You can't think straight. And you certainly can't move. You can't walk. I still remember my sister taking me to the emergency room about two weeks after my heart surgery. I'd already had one uh, cardioversion where they, the, 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 like the paddles, you know, clear, <laughs> reset your heartbeat. And uh, it wasn't nearly as interesting in real life. <laughs> Sat in a hospital room for two days. They wheeled me in. They put me under. They zapped me with these things that I didn't even feel. When I woke up again, everything was right until I went to the gym, overdid it at the gym, came back, and or maybe that was the time I went for a walk. Anyway, um, and I, my sister drove me to the hospital. And we got out of the, uh, the parking lot, the emergency room, and I opened the door, and I went to walk myself into the hospital, and I literally fell to my knees. And I sat there in that prone position until a couple of uh, hospital attendants could come with a wheelchair and pick me up and put me in the chair and wheeled me in. I've never been more physically helpless in my entire life. But I had no balance. Everything wasn't working right. And so I could not walk and I could move forward. So now we have a culture that is so bent on pleasure, so bent on narcissism and myopia and what's been it for me that they literally, if you could imagine our nation becoming that body, they can't get out of the chair. They can sit up in bed, but they can't get out of the chair. And as long as they have a good video screen, as long as they have a good gaming system, as long as they have a good headset and joystick or whatever else the heck you use, because I don't play video games, they're good. And someone will bring them food and someone will take care of their other things. And then they want protection. They don't want anyone telling them that what they're doing is wrong. And so a biblical worldview then flies right in the face of the, the, the convention of what they are actually purporting to do. So you see other religious groups start to pop up and they have a religion that is based more on the pure, just straight ahead, strict religion of self. Religion in and of itself without God is just a bunch of rituals and a bunch of, uh, if you look at the actual definition of religion, it just means you've got this, you know, unbridled devotion to a cause or whatever. People could be religious about the environment. People are religious about football. My goodness, I'm sure there are some people who still believe that the Monday after Super Bowl Sunday should be a holiday. They're taking the whole week off. They have a religious fervor for music or the arts or food or whatever it is. Look at all the television shows you could watch that are all about making the perfect dessert. Getting the perfect decoration in your bathroom. I mean, my goodness, we just we have this religion of self. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do home decorating. We watch decorating shows and house flipping shows too, but not to the point of obsession, not to the point where we're worshiping the home. But as you see more religious fervor for ideas that are outside the body of Christ, the question is, how do you stand up to it? You're seeing more chaplains in the military being requested from people who don't really have a religious affiliation. Take, for example, I mean, that you want humanists to be chaplains. I believe my religion is that I worship human beings and I work, worship the human experiment. That's a big deal. And how about this group called the Satanic Temple? Remember, we were talking about them a couple of weeks ago here on the Bottom Line Show. They've actually started something called an after-school Satan Club. The after-school Satan Club is patterned after the release time education or the Fellowship of Christian Athletes or uh, any of the Bible-based programs that have been existing and coexisting quite nicely with public school systems for years. Remember the one school actually put up flyers on campus, actually put something on their website 
sent emails out to parents saying, hey, if you've been interested in finding out what it's like to be a Satanist, the Satanic Temple is sponsoring an after-school Satan club. What? Ridiculous. Well, the Satanic Temple is at it again. And this time, I think they've even outdone themselves. The city of Scottsdale, Arizona, got into it with them a few years ago. You'll recall back in 2016, 2017, there were a number of cities that were being challenged by these non-traditional religious groups who wanted basically to raise a stink. The idea was that they'd have cities for years, city councils had had like invocational prayers. They'd bring in a local pastor, priest, rabbi, someone like that, and offer a prayer. The more woke cities started getting into imams and, and, and Buddhist priests and monks and things like that. And, you know, different religious expressions were, you know, experienced. Well, the Satanic Club made a petition to the city of Scottsdale, Arizona, and they said, hey, we want to have an invocation uh, at one of your meetings. In 2016, the Scottsdale City Council did give their approval to allow the Satanic Temple in Scottsdale to give a three-minute invocation, three minutes or less, at one of its council meetings. Once the public got word of the fact that the Satanists were coming and giving an invocation, well, then the city council said, uh, we were just kidding. Um, and they were looking for a loophole. And the loophole they found was, well, we're in Scottsdale, and you guys are based in Tucson, so since you're based on Tucson, you're not local, and you can't come here. Whew! Boy, we sure dodged a bullet there. Well, they didn't dodge a bullet there because the Satanic Temple actually filed a lawsuit with the city of Scottsdale over their decision to not allow them to have that invocation. They wound up losing the lawsuit, but it planted the seeds for an idea that actually came to fruition recently, and you are not going to believe what they wound up doing. Are you ready for SatanCon? You know, like convention for Satanists, like Comic-Con, the comic book convention is kind of where I think where a lot of the branding came from. Now they have all sorts of, there's adult con for the you know porn industry. Satan-Con. Satan-Con in Scottsdale, Arizona. What in the world was that all about? And did any Christian show up to say, uh, wait a minute, that's not exactly right. Well, yes, they did. And we'll tell you who they are coming up next as the bottom line continues. Personal injury attorney Stephanie Cover of Cover Law will fight for justice on your behalf. She has to fight because no insurance company will willingly pay what you've lost after an accident. When you're in an accident, you take legal action simply to be restored to where you were prior to your injuries. Money may be needed for medical treatment, financial restitution for lost time at work, or any other thing that you've lost as a direct result of the injury. Stephanie's desire is for justice to find what was taken from you due to your injury and have it restored for you. Stephanie will become your advocate, passionately helping you make sure that your doctor's appointments are productive, the insurance companies are being honest, and she'll make those calls that you don't have time for. Go with K-Bright's trusted personal injury attorney who will help make you whole again. Stephanie Cover at kbrightradio.com slash C-O-V-E-R and get back to your life. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Barshett. If you didn't hear the first segment, please go to thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, you can also check us out on Spotify, from what I understand. I know you can find National Crawford Roundtable on Spotify now. And also Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you podcast. Or you can just go to thebottomlineshow.com or rogerbarsh.com. You'll find us all there. Um, <laughs> I'm just shaking my head. Scottsdale, Arizona. SatanCon. 
the Satanic Temple, which is actually headquartered in Tucson, uh, Tucson, Arizona, had petitioned the city of Scottsdale to allow them to do an invocation at the city council meeting. Now, most Christian pastors who do this do this because it's nice to be asked. I was asked recent, um, recently, within the last couple of years, to lead the invocation at the it was a, a city of Laguna Beach did a, a deal. And uh, it was nice to be invited. I, I, it turned out to be on a date I couldn't make it, and I was able to refer a friend of mine to do it. But it's, it's an honor, and most people in local clergy enjoy the opportunity to go and just say, you know, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for giving us a land where we can worship you freely, and I pray these men and women are making uh, the best decisions in our best, collective best interest and help them and guide them and protect them. You know, some, something really generic. I mean, it's kind of like, if, for lack of a better phrase, it's kind of like saying grace at a big family dinner where you don't know where everybody's coming from spiritually. Well, these fringe groups, humanists, secularists, things like that, have been showing up at these meetings saying, hey, uh, freedom of re- religion, right? Well, this is my religion, which is, I mean, take a step back. It is a little ironic that the irreligious now claim that their irreligious activities are a religion and should be protected by the freedom of religion. But nonetheless, the Satanic Temple has been doing this for quite some time. They, they actually held a black mass in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a couple of years ago. And the black mass basically is, they do a, it's like a reverse Eucharist. Instead of celebrating the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that gives life, they basically want to crucify him all over again and worship Satan. That's a really quick overview as to how that all happens. Um, Satan Con happened in Scottsdale, Arizona, as the result of the Satanic Temple asking the city of Scottsdale if they could lead a uh, uh, an invocation at one of their city council meetings back in 2016. The city originally said yes, then they came back with a really lame excuse. Uh, they said, no, you can't because you're based in Tucson and we're in Scottsdale. Good morning. Ding. Ring the bell. And so the Satanic Temple sued and they lost the lawsuit because a Apparently, that was a good enough reason for the court, but it also gave them the idea, well, they welcomed us once, and maybe we won't go to a city council meeting. Instead, what we'll do is let's show everybody the goodness, quote-unquote, of the Satanic Temple. Here's a statement about the event from the co-founder of the Satanic Temple, someone called Lucian Greaves, quote, and I, it may be Graves, it's G-R-E-A-V-E-S, I think Greaves is a more appropriate pronunciation for someone affiliated with that, but I digress. Lucian Greaves, quote, In addition to creating a community for our members, SatanCon serves as an expression of our goodwill toward the city of Scottsdale, despite the perplexing and unfortunate ruling against us which defied precedent and common sense. Then he added, or I'm not sure who Lucian is. In the course of litigation, Scottsdale officials desperately made clear that they are, in fact, accepting and inclusive regarding Satanists. We heard you, Scottsdale, and we accepted that as an invitation to turn Scottsdale into, and I'm quoting them here, into the happy, satanic, fun capital of the world. The SatanCon event... Uh, featured presentations of the group's efforts to protect members' reproductive rights, in other words, their abortion, fight psychiatric abuse, in other words, if someone tries to tell you you shouldn't be in the satanic temple, that's psychiatric abuse, protect children from abuse in schools. Now, I have to wonder how any organization that promotes black masses is actually protecting children from abuse in schools. 
And then, of course, the uh, requisite uh, addiction recovery and the After School Satan Club, which was created exclusively and expressly to combat, as they put it, the Christian Good News Club that has been meeting at public schools all throughout the country. Uh, Lucian Greaves of the Satanic Temple says the Christian club's presence on schools uh, created the need for a counterbalance in extracurricular options. Now, I'll tell you what, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not opposed to anybody challenging our faith. None of us should be. Scripture's clear. You can test it. It's going to come back proven and provable every single time. But if that were in fact what they were trying to do, uh, Moises Estevez, the vice president of USA Ministries for Child Evangelism Fellowship, uh, gave an interview to the Christian Post recently and said that he thinks this is just a PR stunt. Quote, the after-school Satan Club is simply another attention-seeking atheist club. The choice of mascot reveals that its leaders simply hate God and are trying to provoke or spook parents in schools. Like those before it, this club will fizzle out because parents don't view their children as pawns for a, quote, a blend of political activism, religious critique, and performance art by angry atheists. And it's interesting that I'm actually mentioning this name because, you know, I don't like crabby atheists and angry humanists. But interesting, though, Mr. Estevez made his claim in 2016, and the after-school Satan clubs are still here. But the question then is, okay, who would actually show up as members of the body of Christ and protest or stand up to or even try to have dialogue with the people who are purporting this, I think, monstrosity, this blasphemy, if you will. Well, lo and behold, there's a whole slew of Catholic people who showed up at the event and basically, you know, protested. They held signs, quoted scripture. They prayed, which is always good. There were rosaries and crosses, images of the Virgin Mary. One protester said, we are out here to let the Satanists know that there's no place for evil in Arizona. And we're here to combat that. We're really here to say that Jesus is Lord. Now, I want to take a look at that statement because I'm not faulting the people who went out here. I really honestly don't have an issue with anybody from the Catholic Church or the Evangelical Church or wherever coming to an event like this in the same way that 40 Days for Life, which gets underway first part of March, uh, goes out to abortion clinics and preaches the truth. We preach the truth in love all the time to people who don't want to hear it. That's not the issue. The question I have is not so much the message in terms of what they're saying, but the message in terms of how they're saying it. That quote alone, we're out here to let Satanists know there's no place for evil in Arizona. Well, guess what? There's evil in the world. Everywhere you turn, there is evil. I don't think the question is, well, we're good and you're evil, so you need to go away so we could be here. I mean, you have to remember John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him. So rather than standing up to evil, quote unquote, at the satanic event, my heart is really more motivated to say how many of these people have actually heard the word of God, have heard the gospel preached, know exactly what they're up against, and then have made this choice anyway. If you have heard the true gospel and you know who God is, God gave you the gift of faith and you throw it away, I don't know what hope there is for you. But if you've never heard it, if you've never lived it out, if you've never experienced it, then I'm not going to be the guy who comes after you and says, hey, you should know better. You're evil. 
I'm sure there are a lot of people who wander into these different types of groups, and they don't, they don't know. They might have had a bad experience at church. They never heard the true gospel. And I'm, I'm not saying that all of them are like this, but some of them might be. We're here to combat evil. We're here to say that Jesus is Lord. Well, Jesus is Lord, whether we say it or not. When is this type of protest acceptable? When is it not? I've got a quote from Phoenix Catholic Bishop Thomas Olmsted that we'll share on the other side of this break that kind of sheds a little bit of light on, I appreciate the passion, but let's see if we can be a little more biblical in our approach to this matter. We'll talk about that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marshall. Satan Con three-day event that the satanic temple uh, called something that they had events like raising children in a satanic household, abortion as a religious right. Those are the different things. As a matter of fact, the founder of the satanic temple, uh, the spokesman said, this is what he called it. He said, Scottsdale, we accepted your invitation to turn Scottsdale into the happy satanic fun capital of the world. Now, obviously he's mocking them. They picked Scottsdale, Arizona, because six years ago, the Satanic Temple actually applied for and was initially granted the opportunity to give an invocation at a Scottsdale City Council meeting. Then the city, went, they got a bunch of backlash from Christians and other people saying, why are you letting the Satanists in? And so then they changed their mind. And on a technicality, were able to wiggle their way out of it. The technicality was it was only for people from Scottsdale and the Satanic Temple in Arizona was based in Tucson. So the Satanic Temple sued him. They lost the lawsuit. But then they said, hey, wait, you know, the temple, the, the city council were so gracious to us. They were bending over backwards. We're so sorry. It's just, it's a rule here and we really want you here. And so the Satanic Temple said, okay, you want us here? We're taking up space in this hotel for three days and we're going to have Satan Con. How do you think about that? Anything having to do with the enemy does not want to peacefully coexist. I mean, we have to understand that. But how do we, as Christians, stand up to it? A group of Catholics, uh, very dedicated people, came and, and protested. Signs, banners, rosaries, crosses, Virgin Mary pictures, the whole shot. Phoenix Bishop Thomas Olstead gave a statement, and he asked, actually, he asked Catholics to refrain from this. Refrain from participating in any public demonstration or protest. He said the faithful should instead unite in spiritual warfare through prayer, fasting, and participating in the sacraments. These are the most effective spiritual weapons against Satan's futile attempt at sowing division and confusion in our midst. Bishop Olmsted has an excellent point there. Prayer and fasting, first and foremost. Yet you have to understand as Christians that we live in an evil, fallen world. And there's no protest sign that we could put up there in the face of these people. Because quite frankly, they love the controversy. They love the challenge. Oh, I got a rise out of you, huh? It's like that strong-willed child who says, oh, I'll get you to get mad. And once mom loses her cool, boy, I won. Put me a timeout, put me on restriction for a week. So what? It was worth it to watch mom lose her cool. That's what this type of mentality wants, number one. Number two, what they desperately need is the saving blood of Jesus Christ. And they're being fed a lie. So how do we approach them with the lie? If you went into a doctor's office and you had been told when you were younger that smoking cigarettes would make you cool and make you skinny and uh, solve all your problems and give you a way to take the edge off and all of a sudden you got lung cancer, what do you want? You want a doctor coming in going, hey, dummy, what would you smoke cigarettes for 50 years for? Don't you know? Or how about, okay, 
Let's take a look at the x-ray. Now tell me, how? when did you start smoking? How often? I mean, there's such a thing as bedside manner. And it's very, very helpful. Lord, we lift up everybody who was involved in SatanCon this past weekend in Scottsdale and pray, Father, for their souls. We pray that you would bring healing, that you would bring the truth, that you would open blind eyes to see the realities of the path that they're heading down and how you've got a much better way. It's difficult, it's narrow, it's not easy, but it is ultimately the best. And that's the way of life, following Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm sure there were some arguments among people in different Catholic circles saying, do we protest, do we not protest? How are we going to work these things out? Uh, making things right at work when conflict is a given is very, very difficult. But Dr. Paul White has teamed up with Dr. Gary Chapman of the Five Love Languages to write a book on it called Making Things Right at Work. We're going to talk with Dr. White about how we can do so coming up next as the bottom line continues. For more than 50 years, Dennis Wilson has been offering better alternatives to what the market offers when it comes to investments like certificates of deposit and real estate investment trust. Dennis's 3D account pays even better than market interest rate. Here's Dennis to explain. So what is a 3D account and how does it work? A 3D account is a real estate-backed investment without Wall Street risk. It pays an amazing interest of 7% for the next three years. At the end of three years, you can take your money out. So you can see it's definitely not a REIT or you can reinvest it at 7% in a new program. Go ahead and call today and ask about the 7% account. And then while you're on the phone and ask about our accounts that are pays even higher amounts for funds over 250,000. Learn more about Dennis Wilson's 3D Money account, the better alternative to the Real Estate Investment Trust. Call 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Wilson Financial, simply better alternatives. One of the more interesting aspects of life post-pandemic is the fact that a lot of people who were working in an office um, are now working telecommuting-wise, or maybe they've even changed jobs, but uh, it does help us remind of the fact that there is conflict in the workplace and sometimes those conflicts can lead to some helpful situations and sometimes they can be a bit of a pain. Dr. Paul White is a best-selling author, speaker, psychologist, and leadership trainer who makes work relationships work. He's the co-author of many books and the most recent one is a book called Making Things Right at Work, Increase Teamwork, Resolve Conflict, and Build Trust, co-authored with Dr. Gary Chapman and also Jennifer Thomas. Dr. Paul White, welcome to the Bottom Line Show today. Thank you, Roger. I'm glad to be with you. I'm glad to have you here, too, especially because I hear this phrase a lot, especially from my adult children. I, my wife and I, between the two of us, have, uh, let's see, we have, uh, we have three millennials and three Gen Z. And we'll hear the term work family a lot in terms of the people that they work with, like it feels like a family. Is that a healthy attitude to have? And is that why we have so many conflicts at work, seemingly? Well, I think it can be a healthy attitude in the sense that people feel connected to one another, which is really something that we want to foster and facilitate. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people working remotely and from home and or hybrid don't have that. And I don't know that that in and of itself is a source of conflict. I grew up in a family-owned business and consulted for a number of years with family-owned businesses, and there are clearly challenges when you have dual roles of you know both working with people in your family and so forth. But uh, you know, I, I think conflict exists because we're people, um, and that we uh, miscommunicate, we misperceive, um, and just you know have some struggles that way. 
Mm-hmm. You have identified what you call the five languages of being offended in your section on common causes of conflict at work. Take us on a quick trip through those, Dr. Paul White. As to uh, There are certain ways that people would you'd say, hey, uh, this guy rubbed me the wrong way, and I don't understand why he doesn't do something <laughs> about it. Well, my hunch is because he probably doesn't know he's offending you that way. Talk about those. Yeah, it actually flows out of the work that Dr. Chapman and I did in applying the five love languages to work-based relationships called the five languages of appreciation in the workplace. And we found that the the language that people value to receive positive messages, both appreciation and encouragement, are also sort of the channels that they are most sensitive to uh, receiving negative messages. I mean, it's sort of like having a radio receiver and you get radio waves and then you have a TV and so forth. And so for people that word, are important to them. Uh, you know, they like compliments, but they're also a little bit more sensitive than others to any kind of corrective uh, communication or criticism. So it doesn't take as much um, of that kind of communication to get their attention, whereas there are some, maybe an acts of service that you got to really get their attention, and then they'll listen to you. Uh, quality time um, is the area where people either depending on the age, um, may want individual time with their supervisor or manager, or if they're younger, typically like time with their peers. People that uh, have quality time can be offended if you really don't give them your focused attention when you're supposed to, that you're doing something else, or you're distracted, you're you know, finishing an email or typing on your, uh, you know, texting and um, or looking, you know, if you're in a restaurant, looking over their shoulder at the TV, that kind of thing. Um, or if a group of people go out for lunch and they're not invited, they can be offended, uh, right. and you you wouldn't necessarily know it. Acts of service, um, one way for them is if you just sort of give them praise and compliments but never offer to help when they really right. are maybe trying to finish a, a time-limited project and need some help to, to do that. Or if you sort of correct them uh, and show them a better way, which is your way uh, of doing it, um, that, that tends to not sit well for those people. Um, tangible gifts, it's interesting, although it's a fairly low percentage, and for us it's not compensation and bonuses, but it's just small things that show that you're getting to know your colleagues, whether it's their favorite kind of coffee in the morning or maybe a kind of pizza they like or sports teams they follow and you get them a magazine about that. Um, for them, if you give everybody the same thing or really put no time or effort into the gift, uh, that's offensive to them. This is really a case where it is the thought that matters. Uh, yes. It's not how much money you spend, but that you you know, have you observed what they like and right. taken time and energy to, to meet that. And then physical touch. Uh, is an interesting one in the workplace. Um, it's largely, as we talk about it, just spontaneous celebration, right? It's a high five mm-hmm. when you finish a project, it's a fist bump when you solve a problem, maybe a congratulatory handshake. Physical touch, you know, there are a lot of people that just don't want to be touched, and or right. and we talk about appropriate physical touch uh, in the sense of in the right kind of relationship setting and so forth. Um, usually... If you're in doubt, don't <laughs> with physical touch right. until you get the clear, you know, you know, if somebody's putting a high five up, obviously you can respond, but otherwise, you know, sort of uh, keep your hands to yourself. Dr. Paul White is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, along with Jennifer Thomas and Dr. Gary Chapman, the co-authors of a brand new book called Making Things Right at Work. 
Increase Teamwork, Resolve Conflict, and Build Trust. And we have a link for that book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Before we get too d- deeper in the weeds, Dr. White, I would love to kind of uh, separate the different types of conflict into two really basic categories. Category number one would be necessary conflict. This is a problem that's happening at work. It's a problem we all need to come around and solve. And it could potentially create a conflict if one person says, hey, Joe, your department isn't getting it done right. You know, we've got to work that out. The second part is the unnecessary conflict. And I know you devote a pretty good portion of the book to say, here are some strategies for avoiding unnecessary conflict because there's got to be nothing worse in the workplace than to bring in Susie and say, hey, you know, we've got this issue here and have her say, wow, I didn't even realize I was causing a problem. What are some of the ways that we can avoid unnecessary conflict in the workplace? Well, two major categories of unnecessary conflict are just miscommunication, that somebody mishears Mm -hmm. literally what you say or misinterprets what you say. Um, And the best uh, way to address that is to really work on positive, healthy communication skills. And, you know, it's sort of like for those of us a little bit older, like the Bob Newhart show or something like that, where it's like, you know, what I hear you saying is – and. while that's you know sort of sticky, it's also helpful to clarify, say, hey, so this is what you want me to do, huh? And and repeat it back, and then and then they can clarify or affirm that, um, because it's just crazy how things go sort of sideways real quick when we mishear things, um, and or when we misattribute. Uh, reasons or intentions, motivations, that we think they did something intentionally to make us look bad. Um, Maybe they pointed out, you know, it's a committee meeting and you point out, you know, we sort of missed this at the last event and you were in charge of it and you say, you know, they're just trying to, you know, pull me down from my peers when they're actually just trying to make it so that the next event goes better. So miscommunication and and misattribution of of motives are huge there. And, And I think that's where you know, the five languages of appreciation and other uh, sort of tools of building trust are really important because if you have a personal relationship and feel like they're out and on your team, uh, you can sort of let those things slide and not let your mind go to the negative, whereas if you, if you don't feel like you're valued, uh, you're more likely to go that way. And I would imagine, Dr. Paul White, that one of the issues that does cause unnecessary conflict or maybe unintended conflict is the fact that something might have happened between a couple of employees or employee groups, and one group doesn't see it as a problem, the other one did. And so now it's like, well, uh, you know, can't we just get past this? Can't we just let it go? You've, you've got a whole chapter on understanding letting go. How, how can we recognize that there was a hurt inflicted on someone for whatever reason? And especially for those of us, I'm that guy who's like, really? That was a problem, <laughs> you know, because I have a yeah, tendency right. to just kind of blow through. How how do you let go? How how can you help other people let go of those things too that they're tended they have a tendency to hang on to? Well, again, I think there's a baseline sort of uh, skill set that that is being able to see situations from other people's point of view because a lot of times those situations are due to different perspectives, different values, what you emphasize, what's important to you, and or maybe even your subculture, and so. You know, not saying goodbye when you leave is like no big deal to you, whereas to somebody else it is. Mm-hmm. And to let go, I mean, it, it's sort of uh, the way that we talk about uh, not holding grudges, right? And it's it's a process. It takes time uh, to do that. And, and part of it is communicating directly with uh, the other person, 
I did research and wrote a book on toxic workplaces and how to survive those. And one of the key aspects of a healthy communication or healthy culture is direct communication versus indirect. Mm -hmm. Not asking somebody else what, you know, your friend or your colleague said or did or meant, or trying to go around uh, somebody that you're not getting along well with is to try to deal with that directly. And that's we try to, throughout the book, give a lot of just practical steps for different situations. Um, and, and I would say talking to the person directly is probably one of the most important first steps you can take. Dr. Paul White is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, workforce relationship expert and co-author, along with Jennifer Thomas and Dr. Gary Chapman of the brand-new book called Making Things Right at Work, Increase Teamwork, Resolve Conflict, and Build Trust. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. As we continue, we're going to talk about how you can make things right when you're the one who realizes, oh, my gosh, I, I, I messed this up. When is an apology necessary? When does it not really help? And then how do you build and rebuild trust and relationships in the workplace? We'll talk about that on the other side of this break with Dr. Paul White in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. Dr. Paul White is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. Dr. White is a best-selling author. His books have sold over 600,000 copies. He's a speaker, a psychologist, and a leadership trainer who makes work relationships work. Has done so for the past 25 years or so. He's the co-author of a brand-new book called Making Things Right at Work, Increase Teamwork, Resolve Conflict, and Build Trust. Co-author with Dr. Gary Chapman and Jennifer Thomas. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Paul, I didn't ask you this before we got into our conversation, but what was it for you that made you say, either this is the area that I want to be in or this is the area where we need more people working in? Yeah, it's really the need. I mean, most of us have uh, suffered through conflicts at work, whether or not we are directly involved or we're experiencing it either by managing some team members that are, uh, you know, at odds with one another or it's just on our team. Uh, there's one study that shows that um, the average person spends two hours a week managing conflict, so that's a day a month. You know? Wow. That, and, and the problem is it really starts to, to affect us if it keeps going, uh, where we lose sleep and uh, are getting stressed and agitated, and, and we just need to help get past that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that you are working in that space, especially when you consider uh, the, the reality that conflict is a reality. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who are listening and say, well, we don't have any problems at our church, which is kind of a joke to me as working in pastoral ministry. <laughs> there's always going to be some kind always going to be some kind of conflict. But I think the key before we get into how do you sol- how you solve these problems, you know, how do, how do we really get into it, uh, whether or not to apologize or whatever, is something you shared with me during the break. And I, I really want to underscore this before we go on. And that is the fact that for those who are trying to create a stress-free, conflict-free work environment, you're really barking up the wrong tree. Talk about that, if you would. Absolutely, and especially in, in the environment we're in right now, not only do we have the added complication of people working remotely and virtually and uh, hybrid and new positions and all that, but also we've just got a lot of stress in our lives personally of dealing with all the change that's going on, which makes us more at risk for having conflict or having tension, you know, and, and there's a difference between tension and an actual conflict and then, you know, a big time fight problem, and we, we want to help keep those minimum. 
Let's talk then about the, the solutions. How do you build relationships? How do you rebuild trust in relationships, especially when it comes to something? Well, first and foremost, I guess, if there is an offense that needs to be dealt with, um, how far do you go in terms of trying to apologize for the part that you played in it? Or do you just kind of acknowledge there is a problem and move on? How do you handle that situation? You know, it, a lot of it deals uh, comes from personality. That some people have a hard time apologizing for anything that they don't ever think they've ever made a mistake. Um, right. Or, you know, especially in the workplace, it can be tough. But I think you know, uh, and this is the work of Dr. Thomas that she brought in from the Five Languages of Apology. That really a starting point is to accept responsibility and say, you know, I messed up, or I made a mistake, or I didn't do what I should have done. And that's a great starting point. And for a lot of people, the, re the recipient at least, that's that's good enough. I mean, it's just like, okay, you got it. You, you screwed up. Let's move on. For other people, there's other stages and um, sort of variations of that where you actually express regret. But you don't want to do that if you don't mean it. It's sort of like, t you know, teaching your five-year-old to say they're sorry to their sister for hitting them when they really aren't, you know? I mean, we don't want to go right. there. We want to be honest. Um, and then sometimes it, it goes into, you know, what can I do to make it right? Um, or, and here's what I'm going to do next time to make sure that this doesn't happen. And, you know, sometimes it comes down to, I mean, depending on the severity of the offense, it could be, you know, I, I'm really sorry about this. Would you forgive me? Uh, sometimes that's not necessary. And, and I think it's a, a process of communication with the other person where we don't just sit down and sort of do a PR, you know, written out kind of statement that we read to them, but rather, you know, talk to them and say, man, I did not mean it that way. I'm really sorry that it, it caused offense for you. And lots of times that's sufficient. What about the trust factor then? Okay, you've had a, a breach of that trust because there was an infraction, there was some kind of conflict, Dr. Paul White. What do we do then to rebuild that trust? I mean, is it pos are there some points where you say, hey, look, it's never going to be rebuilt? Is any situation retrievable in that regard? Yeah, uh, clearly there there can be, but I think those are the extremes. Our culture really has a problem with trust, and, I, and I'm excited about this part of the book because, uh, first of all, we talk about it in sort of global extreme terms. Either we trust somebody or we don't. Well, that's rarely the case. First of all, it's usually on a continuum. Secondly, it's situation-specific. Like, you may trust me to take you to the airport. You know, I don't know about LAX, but maybe, you know, Orange County. <laughs> um, and, up there, yeah. <laughs> but you shouldn't trust me to do open-heart surgery for you, right, because that, right. that's not my competence. So mm -hmm. trust is actually built up of both competency, character, which we describe as looking out for my interest as well as your own, and consistency. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, trying to hire a drywall person and they don't show up. They may be competent, they may mean well, but if they don't show up, it doesn't work. And so sort of identifying what's the situation and how much don't they trust me or vice versa, I don't trust them. And it, then it, it allows you to build sort of a, a problem-solving approach to say, okay, if it's competence, let's either get them training or have them shadow somebody, instruction, whatever, more supervision, uh, versus just this either or. Because if somebody says, well, I don't trust Jody, whatever, um, it's like, well, what do you do with that? Because it's just sort of this judgment that sits there. But if we say, you know, I'm having a hard time trusting Jody to consistently get this task done, then you can sort of approach it from a problem-solving point of view. 
You know, I think about this, Dr. Paul White, Dr. Jennifer Thomas, Dr. Gary Chapman have written this outstanding resource called Making Things Right at Work, Increase Teamwork, Resolve Conflict, and Build Trust. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. You learn how to discern the causes of conflict. You can avoid unnecessary uh, disputes. I have to ask you, though, Dr. White, there, does there come a point where maybe the conflict is kind of a precursor to something else that says, hey, maybe part of the reason for the conflict is I'm not supposed to be here anymore. Take the last couple of minutes and talk about with so many, you know, so much uh, turnover in the workplace, the great resignation, right. people leaving, going one place, going to the other. Uh, when is it a healthy time to say, um, we we keep having this conflict and maybe I should be moving on versus we have keep having this conflict and my ego can't take it anymore. So I'll show them I'm going to leave. How do you discern between the two? Yeah, actually, in response to the research we did on toxic workplaces, I wrote a little booklet called uh, How to Know When I'm, I Should Quit My Job. And and I think two things come to mind. First of all, uh, it's going to seem sort of simplistic, but when you start losing sleep uh, regularly over your job, you really need to examine that because when we start to lose sleep, there are all kinds of downline problems that happen with uh, our hormones and just uh, general health and all that. And so it, it's it's really a, a big red flag to consider. And the other part is just other physical kinds of issues that, you, you know, you're now having low back problems or a sciatic nerve or whatever, as well as that people are starting to say, you know, are you okay because you're sort of, pretty irritable and agitated, and it starts mm. to affect your relationships as well. Listen to those signs. Listen to your body. Listen to the, the relationships that are important to you, and you start to see that, man, this is starting to affect uh, major parts of my life, and I need to consider that. You know, I, I don't mean to sound... Uh, uh well, just kind of dismissive on this one, but that sounds so basic. I mean, you'd think we would figure it out. I'm not sleeping well. I'm losing hair. I'm, you know, I got an ulcer or something like that. Maybe this isn't the job for me, but Dr. Paul White, thank you for giving us permission to listen to those physical cues that say, hey, you know what? I mean, if this really is a source of, of frustration for you, then maybe it is time to move on. 60 seconds left in our conversation with Dr. Paul White today here on The Bottom Line. Making Things Right at Work is the name of the book. I highly recommend it. The link is up at thebottomlineshow.com. Dr. White, Take uh, the last minute, talk to that employer who is watching these things happen and says, gosh, it feels like I'm catering like crazy to my employees, especially the younger ones, just to create the right work environment. How do you know if you've got the right work-life balance at work? And when is it time to you know, kind of put the screws to some of your employees and say, stop complaining and get back to work? Yeah, I think you know the first step should always be to talk to and listen to your team members. Because lots of times we misinterpret the reason for the behaviors we're seeing. We see that somebody's uh, sort of low energy, not really that exciting. We think, man, they're just not very engaged. When in actuality, they got a medical issue going on, you know, that we didn't know about. So, and similarly, we can sort of infer certain kinds of tension within relationships and not really understand the dynamics around that or the source of it. So, I think always the first. Uh, and, and a great place to start is to just do a little research, day-to-day -day research, ask, you know, ask for some time with people and say, you know, how are things going here? What do you think needs to um, go better? Am I doing stuff that gets in the way? And really listen to that and, and take it to heart, and, and you'll probably hear some themes across some people. Mm, that's great counsel. Dr. Paul White, thank you for this resource. I, I honestly think, first and foremost, on the work side, obviously it's going to help, but pastors, 
trust me, if you don't think you have conflict at your church, it's because you're not paying attention. I mean, we're people. You've got volunteers. You've got people of all different ages there for all different reasons. This is a great resource to have. Making things right at work, increase teamwork, resolve conflict, and build trust. I can think of at least 10 people I'm going to send copies of this book to right now. We've got a link for it up at thebottomlineshow.com. Dr. Paul White, great to get to know you, sir. Thanks for the work, and thanks for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Thank you so much, Roger. Wow, what a helpful book. What a practical resource. And so grateful to have the time today with Dr. Paul White to discuss it. The book is called Making Things Right at Work, or I might add, Making Things Right at Church, or Making Things Right at Home. <laughs> Increase teamwork, resolve conflict, and build trust. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And boy, I'll tell you what, especially I'm thinking of pastors right now. Tonight, you're going to have to do a few more side steps to get around some of the minefields that are really plaguing your church right now. I know it. I mean, workplace, etc. These are great resources and principles to know. As we continue, we're going to talk about how you resolve conflict and build trust. There's been such a focus in the culture on teamwork of late, and something tells me that if we get the other two right, the teamwork will flow. We'll talk about some recommendations from Dr. Paul White on this subject and topic. Coming up next as the bottom line continues. I can't say enough about Preborn, and I'm going to keep talking about them because I love what this organization stands for. Basically, what they stand for is the truth, the truth and the science, the truth and the science and being honest about the situation that a woman is facing when she is facing an unplanned pregnancy. Did you know this is a problem within the church? 60% of the women who have abortions in the United States do so after already having given birth at least once. 54% of the women who have abortions in the United States are church-going women if not Bible-believing, born-again Christians. So what does that say? It tells me that we in the church need to do a better job of educating people as to what's really going on when a woman tests positive for pregnancy, as they say. Go to a pre-born clinic, they'll do the pregnancy test, then they will do an ultrasound. And the ultrasound technology will show you the pictures of the child in the womb, and then they'll tell you the three options, not the two that the abortion clinics. Abortion clinics say, either you're gonna be a parent that's gonna be expensive and ruin your life, just have an abortion, the third option is adoption, and Preborn recommends adoption every single time a woman comes in with an unplanned pregnancy. 85% of the women who go to a preborn clinic and have the ultrasound choose life for their baby. You can help in this effort. Make your one time donation to Preborn today. Go to kbrightradio.com and click on the Preborn banner. My thanks again to Dr. Paul White, the co-author of the book, Making Things Right at Work, Increase Teamwork, Resolve Conflict, and Build Trust. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, co-authored by uh, counselor Dr. Jennifer Thomas and the legendary Dr. Gary Chapman. 800-227-5278. We have a copy of the book to give away right now, and Teresa has it for you. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to The Bottom Line Show. I was talking about that whole teamwork part of this equation and how we put so much emphasis on teamwork sometimes that we don't really think about resolving conflict and building trust. But when you, one of the sections that I love in this book is when Dr. White talked about the five languages of being offended, how people, uh, you know, often, it's kind of the opposite of expressing appreciation in the workplace, and then the antidote is, uh, you know, what about being offended? But I'll tell you, one of the things that really does uh, get to us in terms of all of this is how you understand what trust is all about especially in the workplace. There are so many places that are trying to position themselves as families and saying, well, we're a family, we're a team, we're a family, we're a family. And with the broken family structure that we have in this culture, less than one out of every five families in America right now is the traditional biblical mom and dad meet when they're young, date, 
get fall in love, get married, and start a family, and they're still together. Every other family is blended or single parent or you know divorced, death, whatever it is. So the idea that we have to build trust in these family relationships and how difficult it is, you really want to focus in this book on the understanding the nature of trust and how to rebuild trust segment, and I think you won't go wrong. Dr. Paul White, Dr. Gary Chapman, Dr. Jennifer Thomas, the book Making Things Right at Work, Increase Teamwork, Resolve Conflict, and Build Trust. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Our KCBC audience leaves us right now to go hang out with uh, Rabbi Schneider and Discovering the Jewish Jesus. Don't forget Bottom Line Show Extra coming up at 7 tonight, and then also uh, Bottom Line Rewind tomorrow at uh, 10.30 a.m. For those who remain on the network, I've got a word that I have to explain to you. It's shoulding. All the things that we tell ourselves we should be doing this and I shouldn't be doing that. Dr. Chris Thurman has written a book on this called Stop Shoulding All Over Yourself, Making the Journey from Condemnation to Compassion. We've got a link for this book up at thebottomlineshow.com. More to come in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. You've heard the expression, woulda, shoulda, coulda. And how many times do we find ourselves measuring or trying to measure up to that kind of standard? You know, I should have done this. I should have done that. Well, what if I told you that there is a, uh, a trained psychologist and author who has a different view on this and encouraging us to make the journey from condemnation to compassion? Dr. Chris Thurman is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, and he's the author of a brand new book. I have to say this title slowly because someone might hear it incorrectly. It's Stop Shoulding All Over Yourself making the journey from condemnation to compassion. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Dr. Chris Thurman, welcome to The Bottom Line Show. Thank you, Roger. Great to be with you. What is it that makes the word should so toxic? I mean, in and of itself, it really isn't that bad of a word. And when it's properly used, I think it can be quite helpful. But it really has become kind of an anathema to people, hasn't it? I think it has. And I think the core reason why it's a toxic word or a mindset is because it leads you to fundamentally stiff-arm reality as it actually is and shame and condemn yourself in the process. Mm. And the challenge there, I think, for a lot of people is I understand that, that when we do have actions, they have consequences, reactions, whatever it is. And if we do something that's inappropriate, there may be a certain measure of guilt. Yeah, I knocked over the cup and the water spilled all over the table. But the shame part is the part that seems to keep it. It's the gift that keeps on giving, I say somewhat sarcastically, mm-hmm. isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to acknowledge and recognize something that you've done wrong that's improper and you need to you know, course correct. But shame is just that stink, that kind of mildew sound, smell, if you will, that just won't go away. It really is. Um, you know, there's a big difference between I shouldn't have missed my exit, which is a royal to the fact that you were five lanes over and weren't paying attention. Right. And I wish I hadn't missed my exit, which is a lot less shaming and condemning. Mm-hmm. How do we get, how, how did we as a culture get to this point, Dr. Chris Thurman? I mean, it seems like it's getting a lot worse, especially in a culture that does so much for so many different people groups to say, we want to get rid of guilt. We want to get rid of shame. You shouldn't be ashamed of the way you are and the way you feel and the way you look and whatever. And yet it seems like shame is just running rampant in the society today, especially in the church. You know, it it strikes me, Roger, that there have been two extremes on that. One is to preach to people kind of out of self-help pop psych that you should not have any guilt at all, Mm -hmm. Uh, that you you know, you're doing the best you can, so get off your own back and, and don't beat yourself up, even for the most immoral things. 
And the other extreme is more the legalistic, uh, you know, going after people because they're human and they make mistakes and just legalistically beating them up pretty good for the fact that they do wrong things. So the devil is always in the extreme and the healthy middle is what I'm trying to hit in this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm talking with Dr. Chris Thurman today here on The Bottom Line. The brand new book is called Stop Shooting All Over Yourself, Making the Journey from Condemnation to Compassion. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, let, let's talk about this uh, from the perspective of we want to make some identification and then get into some practical solutions to this. Uh, give us some examples. You mentioned the, the freeway analogy, which unfortunately I resonate with all too much uh, because <laughs> of spending a lot of time on the road. But what are some other areas that people might be shooting themselves, as it were, and not even be aware that they're doing so? A lot of them have to do with just uh, making personal mistakes. Um, you know, I shouldn't have lost my car keys. I shouldn't have dropped that glass on the floor and broken it. I shouldn't have yelled at my kids. I shouldn't have uh, been late to the meeting. Uh, just any version of proving that time and time again you're you're not God's equal. You're mm-hmm. you're not uh, infinite and all knowing and all powerful. So the broader version is you know taking yourself out behind the woodshed when you prove that you're a finite fallen human being. Mm-hmm. It happens. Which is more toxic, Dr. Thurman, the shooting that we do to ourselves? Or those people who, God bless them, they quote-unquote love us, and you know, it's like, well, you know, you really should do this, or you really shouldn't mm-hmm. do that. I mean, does it sting a little bit more coming from a friend or a confidant, spouse, something like that? I think it does, uh, although I would say that both are very toxic, uh, because when you should all over yourself, you're damaging the relationship that you have with you. And when you should all over others, you're damaging the relationship you have with them. And given that loving your neighbor as yourself is the, one of the core commandments, uh, you're, you're really kind of violating that both directions. Uh, Dr. Chris Thurman is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, and the book is called Stop Shooting All Over Yourself, Making the Journey from Condemnation to Compassion. Please check it out at thebottomlineshow.com. It's well worth your time. Um, when you... When you set out to write this book, I mean, in your practice and counseling and and ministry, I'm sure you were running into a a lot of people who were facing this kind of thing, uh, helping them to become aware of the fact that we all should all over ourselves, as you say, uh, is is, is becoming more commonplace. Um, There's a difference, though, between the awareness, I know I'm doing this, and understanding the kind of damage that this does to not only ourselves, but then also the way we interact with other people, because what's the old expression? Hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- talk about the, 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 the should component from that standpoint of, you know, because you run the risk of saying you really shouldn't should yourself, because if you do, then uh, you're going to wind up shooting all over other people, too. Yeah, I think that's true. Um I often tell my clients that um, this is a very hard mental tape to break, uh, that if you're not careful, you will, as you said earlier, should all over yourself, that you're shooting all over yourself. So what I try to tell my clients is please be compassionate to yourself about it. Please please understand that the damage that shoulds cause is already bad enough and that you don't need to, you know, be 
down on yourself, denigrate yourself, be condemning of yourself, that you have a lot of these deep-seated toxic shoulds in your psyche, and that you're going to have a, you know, a rather challenging time to uh, overcome them over time if you'll keep your hand to the plow on it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me, I, I, as I was thinking about praying over your book, and what you're driving at here, which is such an important, vital uh, you know, need, especially in the church, is the number of people would say, yeah, but Dr. Thurman, you got to understand that when you look at the Bible, the Bible really is full of shoulds, have tos, musts. And for a lot of people, it, once they get into the, the faith community, it seems like whatever unhealthy shoulding comes their way, it seems to be magnified. Is that so much a question of the the way it's being interpreted or what the words are actually saying? Does God get to have a couple of shoulds in there too? Uh, my personal uh, understanding, Roger, is that there is not a single should in the Bible. Hmm. Uh, there are many, many commands, but the Bible doesn't say you shouldn't murder. It says thou shalt not. It doesn't say you shouldn't lie. It says thou shalt not. So are there commands in the Bible for proper behavior? Absolutely. Is God a righteous God who wants us to uh, be righteous in our own actions? Absolutely. But if you'll, if you'll look more deeply at the way Christ interacted with people, you'll never hear him say, Judas, you shouldn't have betrayed me. Hmm. Peter, you shouldn't have denied me three times. Woman caught in adultery, you shouldn't have been committing adultery. Rich young ruler, you shouldn't be addicted to wealth. He never, ever once talked to people that way. It was always, you did betray me. You did deny me three times. You have been living this life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. That's massive. I, that that distinction could be, I think, very subtle for some people, but it's so important for us to understand as we're trying to get our arms around the concept of the shoulding, as it were, that we do to ourselves, and the shoulding then that we wind up doing to other people. Because if we're looking at God's love for us, and as you pointed out, Dr. Thurman, it, it's it's huge for us to be able to say, this isn't a question of should, it's a thou shalt not, then all of a sudden it, God makes a lot more sense and then we understand the toxic nature of the shoulding process. Dr. Chris Thurman is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. The brand new book is called Stop Shoulding Yourself, S-H-O-U-L-D-I-N-G. Uh, make the journey from condemnation to compassion. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're going to talk about that journey, what it looks like, because we're aware of how we condemn ourselves in the should process. Now, what do we do with all that extra energy that we've been using toward that and trying to make ourselves more healthy spiritually and allowing God to heal up some of those wounds as well? More on my conversation with Dr. Chris Thurman in just a moment as the bottom line continues. For more than 50 years, Dennis Wilson has been offering better alternatives to what the market offers when it comes to investments like certificates of deposit and real estate investment trust. Dennis's 3D account pays even better than market interest rate. Here's Dennis to explain. So what is a 3D account and how does it work? A 3D account is a real estate-backed investment without Wall Street risk. It pays an amazing interest of 7% for the next three years. At the end of three years, you can take your money out. So you can see it's definitely not a REIT. Or you can reinvest it at 7% in a new program. Go ahead and call today and ask about the 7% account. And then while you're on the phone and ask about our accounts that are based even higher amounts for funds over 250000 
Learn more about Dennis Wilson's 3D Money account, the better alternative to the Real Estate Investment Trust. Call 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Wilson Financial, simply better alternatives. Dr. Chris Thurman is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, a psychologist, author, and public speaker who earned his doctorate in counseling psychology from the University of Texas, and that's the that's the main campus, right? Hook'em Horns and all that stuff? Absolutely, Hook'em Horns. All horn. right, all right. You're, you are, have this great new book with a provocative title, Stop Shoulding All Over Yourself, Making the Journey from Condemnation to Compassion, and I don't find it surprising at all that somebody who understands the difference between a healthy, this is God's standard, and an unhealthy, you should have done this, should have done that, would be a golfer. Because, uh, <laughs> quite frankly, I don't have the temperament because you oh, you shouldn't have hit that slice there, you should have hit that butt this way, whatever. I, I, I'm having a little fun, but a very dear friend of mine in the ministry is also a golfer, and he's got a three handicap. I mean, he's really good. Um, yeah. Talk about uh, that. That would seems like it would be a good place for someone like me to maybe get out on the links and do 18 holes because of the fact that the reason I haven't in the past is I should be doing it differently and I just can't make myself do it. You know, to me, golf is one of the uh, a major tests of your self-talk and mm-hmm. especially your negative, bad self-talk. And I, you know, as much golf as I play, I still find myself going out there and shooting all over myself. Well, you (laughs) you shouldn't have hit that one into the woods. You shouldn't have made your putt go three feet by the hole. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I try to teach in this book is that what should have happened did, meaning that given that you hit the ball too hard and you lifted your head before you hit it, the ball should have gone into the woods, and it did. Now, can you mm. accept that? Mm-hmm. You know, given that you hit your putt too firmly, can you accept that it went three feet by the hole? Or are you going to stiff-arm reality by saying, well, I shouldn't have done that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is a real test of how reality-based can you stay while you're doing a sport. Mm-hmm. I love that illustration. It's a good reminder because my family plays tennis instead. You have a little more grace. But uh, Mm -hmm. nonetheless, because you can slap and whack and get lucky every now and again, golf is not nearly as forgiving. (laughs) But but as you talk about the the, encouraging people in your new book, stop shooting all over yourself, making the journey from condemnation to compassion. Um, The idea that you really are saying, look, this is not a question of me saying you should do this and you shouldn't do that with regard to shooting, but there is a compassionate way. There there is a way that we can be more Christ-like, that we can be more at peace with ourselves and with each other and be, you know, a little more objective where we, we do. It probably takes, I would imagine, a lot of our time and energy every day to keep up with the shoulding process. Do you have any specific uh, uh, particulars on, on how much time you get back in the day when you stop beating yourself up, if you will, and start doing what you just did saying, hey, you know, that ball should have gone into the woods because you used the wrong iron, you used the wrong wood right. to hit it off right. the tee. Yeah, that's just objective. Well, I think that's a great way to put it, that you get a lot of your life back when you stop shooting all over yourself. Um, the enemy is out to kill, steal and destroy. So right. he's always trying to take as much of life from you as he can. And I believe fundamentally he is the author of shoulds. Uh, I think he knows they're toxic. I think he knows they destroy you. And I think he knows, back to our golf analogy, that it takes all the joy out of playing because you can't walk around a golf course or a tennis court and and uh, covered in shame and condemnation and enjoy the sport anymore. Right. 
So it's a very important thing to see this as a journey, one that you never completely finish because you never get perfectly free from your shoulds and your shouldn'ts. But I think we can make a lot of progress out of them. Yeah. Well, let's take talk about some of the helpful steps. I mean, we've discussed uh, at length, and if anyone is just tuning in, didn't have the chance to hear the first part of our conversation, you can find it at Apple Podcast and at TheBottomLineShow.com. But as we talk about Dr. Chris Thurman's book, Stop Shooting All Over Yourself, Making That Journey from Condemnation to Compassion, let's talk about some steps. I mean, what, what's some practical use, Dr. Thurman, uh, that we have for this newfound uh, information right now in terms of saying, okay, I want to identify the problem, and then we're going to stop being deconstructive, we're going to be constructive. Well, I preach to my clients all the time, self-awareness, self-awareness, self-awareness. You know, real estate people say location, location, location. Yep. Well, you're not going to come out of anything that you're not, that you're doing. So I teach them, please try to start taking those thoughts captive. Hmm. Uh, Please try to catch those and those shouldn'ts when they enter your mind. Secondly, we years ago when I wrote the book, The Lies We Believe, we used to teach people to dispute the faulty thought. We don't do that anymore. We don't want people sitting there arguing with the faulty thought we, because that just gives it more oxygen. Um, the analogy we often use is don't fight quicksand. Mm. Think further into it when you're in it. And that's what we do with thoughts now is don't fight them. You just sink further into them when you fight them. So just observe them, notice them, just be curious that you have thought. And we teach people to look at thoughts rather than through them. Mm. That's another major distinction that we're now making with kind of uh, the latest wave of cognitive therapy is look at the thought, look at the feeling, don't look through them and don't let them dictate your view of reality. So we preach awareness. Please be aware of what you're thinking. We preach don't fight it. Just observe it and be curious and observational. And then the third piece is have compassion for yourself that you would have thought that. Have compassion that you're in the mental quicksand because it's not a pleasant place to be. And then the fourth step is whatever is true, lovely, pure, and worthwhile, think on these things. Because that will help you get out of the quicksand. If you'll think on the right thoughts rather than battle the bad ones, you're going to get out of that quicksand sooner or later. You know, it's interesting, Dr. Chris Thurman, as we're talking about this stopping of the shooting of ourselves, I thought of another passage in Scripture that has always been one that I thought was elusive. I mean, in all honesty, I'm 60 years old, been a Christian most of my life. But the idea that we could take every thought captive— you know, mm-hmm. just it seemed like, well, well, of course you can't, because that that would imply that if you have a negative thought that's coming your way or maybe a bad or evil thought, that you're somehow supposed to stop it before you actually think it. But when right. you frame it the way you do, it, it's not so much a question of taking it captive before it comes out and somebody else might find it, but rather to just, as you say, if you observe it first, it's a lot easier to take captive, isn't it? Yeah, I think, Roger, that's a great point. You you can't possibly, just out of a common sense perspective, take a thought captive that you haven't consciously had yet. Mm-hmm. So it's a post-thought phenomena when you try to be aware that you had it, uh, take it captive in the sense of acknowledge it, uh, cast it down, don't argue with it, don't dispute it, don't beat it up with Scripture, just cast it down. 
have compassion again. To, to me, compassion, Roger, is much more of a major piece of my counseling efforts is helping people have self-compassion when a thought enters their mind that is working against them. And then again, what is lovely, true, pure, and what's the mind of Christ on this particular incident that I ran into? I'm talking with Dr. Chris Thurman today here on The Bottom Line about his brand new book called Stop Shooting All Over Yourself, Making the Journey from Con- Condemnation to Compassion. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And Dr. Thurman, got a couple minutes left here. Uh, it occurs to me as we're having this conversation that because you are made uniquely in the image of God and can play golf, and I'm made uniquely in the image of God and cannot. I mean, that's one of many differences we have, and yet we're bound by a common faith. Uh, talk to the person who says, okay, I picked up your book, I started reading through it, and you were talking about some things that really felt like you were reading my mail, and others mm-hmm. that didn't seem like they really related to me. I mean, talk about the the universal nature or not universal nature of shooting on the whole does happen, but it doesn't necessarily happen the same way for different people, does it? No, it doesn't. Uh, I think people are that unique. Uh, you know, there may be 8 billion of us, but there are 8 billion, billion very nuanced thinking patterns going on. So what I tell people is, look, try to read through the book with a couple of thoughts. Number one, everybody shoulds all over themselves. So don't think that you don't. You may not be aware that you do, but you do. And secondly, the 20 different shoulds and shouldn'ts that I cover be on the lookout for which two or three are more uniquely the ones that you struggle with and try to focus in on those for a while. Hmm. Great counsel from Dr. Chris Thurman today here on The Bottom Line. Counselor, author, speaker, and the brand new book is called Stop Shooting, S-H-O-U-L-D-I-N-G, All Over Yourself, Making the Journey from Condemnation to Compassion. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Dr. Thurman, a pleasure to get to know you, sir, and I wish you all the best success back next time you're out on the links. I'll be rooting for you, that's for sure. (laughs) And not shooting all over myself in the process when you're hitting those holes in one and birdies. Thank you for the book, and thanks for your time today here on The Bottom Line. Roger, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I love this title, and I love this book, and I think you will too. Dr. Chris Thurman, the book is Stop Shooting All Over Yourself, Making the Journey from Condemnation to Compassion. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And as ever said to yourself, I should not have done that, or, oh, I should have done that. Why is it that we jump into condemnation mode instead of saying, wait a minute, something happened, I don't really have any control over it, therefore, you know, Stop shooting all over yourself. Uh, We'll take a quick break here. When we come back, I want to dive into this a little bit more because I get the sense that there are a lot of us who are shooting ourselves when we really should not. (laughs) Dr. Chris Thurman's book, Stop Shooting All Over Yourself, is up at thebottomlineshow.com. More to come in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. One of the things I appreciate, and I know you do too, about preborn is the fact that they tell you the truth about where you are in pregnancy. You know, it, 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 it's amazing how the National Institute of Health and the CDC wants to classify pregnancy as a quote-unquote illness, so then they can prescribe quote-unquote treatment medication in the form of an abortion pill to end the abortion. Well, that's crazy. We know, you know and I know, that God creates each of us in the womb of our mothers, and he creates each of us uniquely for a purpose. And 85% of the women who go to preborn clinics and they don't hear the, the propaganda from the abortion industry that says you, your two choices are either abortion or misery, that there are three options. And the third one involves basically 
choosing life for the child and releasing that child for adoption. I want to thank a couple of people for their very generous donations to Preborn. Dean in National City made a $1,400 donation. Dave in Lake Forest, a $500 donation. Uh, and also Edward in Norfolk, Nebraska, who listens online with a 48 monthly dollar donation. Uh, go to kbrightradio.com. Click on the preborn banner and make your best donation today. It's completely tax deductible. 100% of your donation goes to ultrasound technology, and we're saving lives and saving babies through preborn. Click on kbrightradio.com, hit the preborn banner today. My thanks again to psychologist and author Dr. Chris Thurman for sharing some time with us today here on the program and having a conversation about the concept of people who should themselves. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you, this uh, this concept is just it's neat. I mean, it's, it's just, it's wonderful and it's a refreshing. Uh, but one of the most toxic and destructive ways that we view reality is when we think in terms of how things should or shouldn't be. And matter of fact, there's a Switchfoot song that talks about this. Which one is it? Um, Meant to Live, that's the one. Where he says, you know, uh, I think about how, how, it is and how it could be, how it was and how it should be, or something like that is the lyric. There are times in our lives where we have these preconceived notions of what life should be. And then we act in a certain way. And then you find out that life isn't like that, and now you have a choice. The choice is, do you accept things for the way they are? Or do you spend more time looking at the things that should... Chris Thurman identifies... 21 different ways that we should all over ourselves. Like, I shouldn't make mistakes. I should be able to get more done. I should be able to control my circumstances. I should know more than I do. I should be happier. I shouldn't do embarrassing things. I should be addicted. I should be more sensitive. I shouldn't forget things. I should be more successful. I should like everything about the way I look. I should be emotionally smarter. I should be in a better mood. You get the idea. Those voices pop into your head and my head every single day. The question is, did God make us? that way where is that coming from how do you discern the holy spirit and the voice of god talking to you versus the devil and the enemy and how many of those shoulds and should nots that i just mentioned are coming from on high or coming from down below the vast majority of the condemnation that comes our way comes from the enemy as a matter of fact all of it does because if romans is accurate then it's there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Full stop. So I'm going to use the should word once again here in closing. You really should stop shoulding all over yourself and embrace the love of God that sets you free, that sets all of us free to be who God made us to be. And that's the bottom line.